0: And now, coming to you live to tape from the Derek Duvall Production Bunker, it's Derek Duvall!
1: Hello, Duvall Nation. Hello. Hey, everybody. Hi. Thank you. Thank you. Please sit. Thank you. Hello, Duvall Nation, and welcome to the Derek Duvall Show. That is right. We are back with another fantastic journey into the lives of extraordinary people. Before we jump into this episode, though, I want to say a big thank you to my last guest, Stephen Capsudo. was a fun conversation, and the feedback was very positive. If you haven't had a chance to hear our fun interview, I strongly encourage you to seek it out after the conclusion of this episode. All right, so welcome to episode 142 and Word's fail me to describe how absolutely historic this episode is. So I'm going to go ahead and take a few deep breaths and I'm going to just wing this, okay? So, <sighs> okay, you ready? We have on the show today author Bill Moore. Bill is a historian and is heavily involved in the Oklahomans in Space program. Bill has authored several books in, about the space program, including Retrofire, the story of Tom Weichel from Colony, Oklahoma to the Moon, and Never Panic Early, an Apollo 13 astronaut's journey. Bill is also on the board of directors for the Stafford Air and Space Museum. And trust me, you won't find someone other than me who is so passionate about the space program. That's for sure. Now, here is the best part. We also have on the show, and I can't believe I get to say this out loud, Apollo 13 astronaut Fred Hayes. Yes, you heard that correctly. I have an Apollo astronaut on the show. I can't believe it. Fred will tell us about his journey from a fighter pilot in the Korean War to a test pilot and then joining the Astronaut Corps. Fred will then tell us about his incredible story of survival during the Apollo 13 mission, where a ruptured oxygen tank caused an explosion that crippled the spacecraft and led to one of the greatest and most inspirational rescues in the history of mankind. We have an incredible interview lined up, so let's get to it. Duval Nation... Please rise to your feet and welcome to the show, calling in from Oklahoma City, Bill Moore, and calling in from Houston, Texas, Apollo astronaut and American hero, Fred Hayes. (laughs) Bill, Fred, hello. Welcome to the Derek Devall Show. As I said, leading into the interview, this is indeed a great honor for me. Let's start it out simple. How was the weather out by the two of you today?
2: <laughs> I'm having thunderstorms in Oklahoma City. <laughs> well, no, no. I'm uh, I'm pretty good in Houston.
3: South wind got to about 82 or 83 degrees today. I
1: start my interviews off the same way, and that is, how has it been for the both of you to navigate the COVID-19 pandemic up to this point?
3: Well, I, I'll talk first, Bill. I, I COVID-19... Uh, Personally, didn't didn't bother me that much. I managed to get all my shots, including two boosters, and not, none of my family uh, hardly didn't have any problems, so I was fortunate that way. Of course, my life otherwise was mostly affected by the slowdown in events, mm-hmm. uh, particularly speaking events and uh, that kind of thing around the country. That, in fact, conventions and those kind of things, as you know, just died. Mm -hmm. during that uh, 2019 early 2020 period so that was probably the biggest effect from directly from COVID to me.
2: I'm the same way I've I've had the the vaccine and have not had to deal with it it's it's been really one of the bright points if there can be a bright point from the COVID was that Fred couldn't attend a lot of these events he was going to and gave us time to write the book.
1: <laughs> All right, so every journey has a beginning. We will start with you, Bill. Where were you born, and what was it like to grow up there?
2: I was born in Oklahoma City, that's where I live now. I grew up next to Tinker Air Force Base. So I was able to play baseball or whatever outside and watch uh, watch the airplanes fly around and uh, always had and you know, just the impact of aviation has been huge in my life from that to, The fact that my dad worked for the FAA and just to be an important in Oklahoma aviation and and space exploration, both are pretty important. It was part of my life growing up and and, uh, has been part of my adult years too.
1: Fred, where were you born and what was it like to grow up during the Second World War?
2: Okay, I was born in Biloxi, Mississippi
3: in 1933, a small town uh, right on the Gulf Coast. A lot of swimming and uh, fishing and those kind of activities in uh, my youth and growing up there. was a quiet uh, town. The main business was fishing. Uh, uh, For a while, it was uh, one of the leading suppliers of oysters and shrimp around the country. And small tourist business with a a couple of small beaches that grew later with dredging to be bigger. But World War II, uh, the biggest change was this 14,000 population town. All at once, between uh, Keesler Air Force Base, which was developed, and Gulfport Field, 12 miles away, uh, there were over 100,000 airmen all at once, (laughs) in uh, khaki uniforms roaming around. So I I was a a youngster then, uh, trying to walk through Howard Avenue, which was USA uh, Main Street in Biloxi, and having a walk between uh, all these khaki people in khaki uniforms. Mm. So, yeah, it was a big growth. Uh, Certain businesses grew with that. The pool halls, we had three pool halls all of a sudden. We we had, I think, one or two. (laughs) And a lot of bars sprung up to service the entertainment for all the airmen when they were on Liberty. So that kind of changed a little bit with the town during those days.
1: I'm going to hate myself for saying boomer sooner out loud, but what are both of your favorite memories from your time at the University of Oklahoma? We'll start with Fred first and then Bill
3: well, i I went to school at uh, I'd call it as more a senior citizen compared to the really the early freshman or whatever in engineering school, because I'd been through two years of college uh, earlier, had gone into the military for uh, uh, four years in uh, two marine fighter squadrons during that period in early Korean War and uh, the latter, latter part of the Korean War, rather. And so I got out and was kind of you know much more mature, not a not a frat boy. And actually married with one child. Uh, when I went to start at school at OU to, to complete curriculum for an engineering degree, mm. uh, great football during that time under a coach named Bud Wilkinson. In fact, there uh, that undefeated uh, record of, uh, was a 38. Bill, 47, 47 games straight undefeated, and that's still the record in college record today. So I got to see a lot of good football while I was there during those three years.
2: Bill. I was able to catch the next era. Coach Switzer, Barry Switzer, was coach when I was at OU. It was it was a lot of fun watching the years that I was there. He he went undefeated except for one game lost to Kansas, and had two national championships back to back. And so there were some special years for Fred and I both uh, watching the football. This is kind of a uh, a topic that brought Fred and I together a lot whenever we would visit with each other. Is both of us attending University of Oklahoma, we, we had a lot to, to share and talk about, which we still do to this day. He'll call and tell me something about Baker Mayfield and the NFL or or I'll <laughs> call him and we'll talk about the girls' softball team or, you know, just, just so much going on. Nice. <laughs> brought yeah, gave us a common denominator.
1: Bill, why choose journalism?
2: You know, I enrolled as pre law because I had been in debate in high school and and that you know, that just seemed a natural for me. And in taking some of my, you know, freshman-level courses, I took a journalism course, just an intro to journalism, and, as they say, fell in love with it. And I said, okay, this is really what I want to do. I pursued it after that, and I've loved it ever since. Great decision. I've been able to do so many things with that degree and pursued my master's degree later and went on to even better things and more fun things. So I couldn't have chosen better. I, I've really had a good career and a good life with this with journalism.
1: Now, Fred, if I understand you never originally wanted to join the Air Force, as you would join the Naval Aviation Cadet Program, but you ended up in the Air Force through the Reserve Program. Is that correct?
3: But I uh, joined because a lot of my family had served in World War II. My dad had been a merchant marine for 12 years, had and then served in the Navy during World War II. In fact, he was on a ship that got sunk during one of the invasions in the Pacific. So I felt I had to serve my country while the Korean War was going on, and when I enlisted, it was still going on. But within about six months, seven months, I was in the training program. They signed the armistice, so the war ended. Mm -hmm. But I stayed uh, through my four years and uh, did serve in two Marine fighter squadrons uh, before deciding I wanted to be a test pilot which uh, meant uh, going back to school, which is what I did at at OU to get an engineering degree, which is kind of a prerequisite for a test pilot.
1: Right. Fred, what do you remember applying and being accepted to the astronaut corps?
3: I uh, was at NASA, of course. I started as a test pilot with NASA. Well, actually, when I started thinking about doing it, it had not become NASA yet. It was NACA, more an aircraft test primarily. And became NASA at the time I uh, started hunting for a, a job in 1959. And I joined at Lewis Research Center and uh, then moved to their flight, really their big flight test facility at Edwards Air Force Base in California. At uh, then was Flight Research Center, it's now Armstrong, named after Neil. And so seven years, I was in aircraft test. And I really, most of that period, I wasn't thinking about uh, joining the astronaut program. I was having so much fun. We're very busy in flight tests. That was, I, was, I was lucky, and that's kind of the back end of the, what they call the golden age of aircraft tests, at Edwards anyway. And Neil Armstrong had visited. Neil was also a NASA pilot he, when he got out of the Navy. And he went to Lewis Research Center, where I had started, and then he moved to Flight Research Center at Edwards, as I had. So I was trailing Neil about three years. Mm-hmm. And he came and visited one time after his uh, Gemini flight and talking to him, asking him, you know, what's it like being an astronaut? And he said, well, you you sit in a lot of meetings. Uh, <laughs> you sit in a simulator a lot. And he said there's not much good flying. And, of course, he was talking about what we were doing at Edwards, which was flying many different aircraft probably involved either in support roles or directly in about three test programs at the same time. So I had to think hard about should I leave that or not and apply even. And uh, what convinced me was the X fifteen program was going on at the time. And pretty much the, the rule in our office, pilot's office was they went by seniority as to when you had joined the office. And I was about three people down the list, which did become two only, I was only trailing two when Bruce Peterson crashed the lifting body and lost an eye. So, but I knew I'd never probably get a chance to fly the extra fifteen before the program was over. So that's why I applied. Said, so, well, if I'm going to go higher and faster, I'm probably going to need to do it being an astronaut. And also, the lunar mission was kind of exciting to think about. To think about going to the moon. So that's uh, that's why I applied.
2: I could add a, a little Oklahoma touch here. Fred had come as as he told you, he'd come to OU to get his engineering degree, and also he came because of the jet that the Oklahoma Air National Guard flew, and uh, he wanted to fly that, and so. It was a P-80, isn't that right, Fred?
3: Yeah, it was a yeah, well, it was a high-performance, right at that time and, time and age. It was a, one of the a relatively high-performance jet aircraft, or I wanted to say card in. So that's how I ended up with the Air Force uh, Commission. I, I uh, exchanged my Marine Commission for, for an Air Force Commission to be in the Air National Guard, both in Oklahoma and later, actually,
2: in Ohio. So while he was here, he flew with the Air Guard, and the commander, Stanley Newman, was the one that encouraged him to go to work for NASA as a research pilot. So mm-hmm. there's a lot of that interconnected influences in Fred's life from, from uh, the state.
1: That's amazing. Now, Fred, I want to ask you first, how tight is the Astronaut Corps? And were you involved much in the early days of Apollo?
2: The way it
3: worked, you worked primarily with those who were assigned to a given mission. The prime and backup crews were normally together every day on meetings. Mm-hmm. They'd trade normally morning and afternoon as to who used the simulators. And you had a support crew. You had a support crew of normally three uh, of the junior astronauts. And uh, those are the people, and, and you're, you really wasn't around the astronaut office. All the training was done, the simulators were all in Florida mm-hmm. at Kennedy, not Houston. So you didn't get to see many of the people in the <laughs> astronaut office and frankly for my first assignment as a junior astronaut i was assigned to follow the limb testing at grumman so i was mostly in new york at the grumman plant for 14 months mm. so i was not in the astronaut office very much during that whole period so occasionally when there was a big meeting called by deke to some announcement or flight safety kind of meeting it gathers back together so i i knew. Uh, Gus and uh, Ed White and Chaffee, only when I see them walking down the hallway in the office now and again. Now that was about it. The astronaut corps is not a very tight group. It's not like a squadron. Mm. As, as I told you, you're, you're tight by the missions assignments, who you work with every day. Long, long hours. Tremendous. Seven, seven, got, getting close to launch the last month to six weeks, you're normally at it seven days a week. Mm. But it was exclusively with those people who are directly involved with that mission. So the rest of the afternoon office, again, you're new, but I would say more from social events or occasionally seeing them around the office, but that's about it.
1: This next question is for Bill. I do wish I was born in the age of Apollo, and I ask you to paint a picture for my listeners. What do you remember watching Apollo 8's mission on television?
2: That was very influential mission in my growing up years. I was 12 at the time, and I was very fascinated by this new area of space, but to see them read Genesis, the opening verses of Genesis, while they were showing us the moon live on uh, Christmas Eve, it was it was just a huge impact on me, and just in time to to see that summer Apollo Eleven land on the moon. And what's fascinating to me is those two big events. Fred was the backup on both missions and, uh, just full circle coming back to, to that from my, uh, early years of watching and enjoying the space program, then to write, help Fred write this book today. It's, it's just been an amazing thing.
1: We're going to circle back to Apollo 11 in a minute, but this next question is for Fred. Uh, Fred, Neil Armstrong is someone I put on par with walking on water. Fred, do you have a favorite story of interacting with him?
3: I knew Neil uh, from the earlier days before he was an astronaut. We'd fly occasionally to a uh, flight research center, even when I was at Lewis Research Center. So I had known Neil from you know the early 60s before he even joined the astronaut program. He was a quiet kind of guy. Uh, he didn't talk very much. In meetings, he would listen a lot. And normally when he spoke, though, it was right on or a, a very good, well-thought-out either answer or amplification on some of the discussion going on. No, he's not a... I would say he was he was not an outgoing, very talkative sort of fellow. He was very meticulous because he was actually the commander on my first crew. I, Neil, Buzz Aldrin, and I were the backup crew for eight. And so I was with Neil and Buzz every day and mm. simulators and uh, the th- stuff we were doing to get ready to go fly that mission. Most people don't realize, but we trained the same as the prime crew. We were ready to go fly. In fact, you could have changed out a whole crew the week of launch and it wouldn't have mattered. And we proved that obviously on 13, we changed out one crew member two and a half days before launch. So uh, you, you, were t- you were together every day. Like I said, you're normally trading off on who got the simulator morning or afternoon and that kind of stuff. So you're with them, with them a, lot, a lot during that period.
1: This next question is for the both of you. Where were you both when Neil Armstrong stepped on the moon? And Fred, you go ahead and go first.
3: I was in mission control. The customary thing is for the backup crew to be in mission control during all what we call the dynamic phases, the critical phases, if you will. And that was because we were the ones that that planned to fly it. So if anything went wrong, we were probably a good asset to be available to join in with the mission control people and try to work through any problem that occurred. Okay, Bill, where were you?
2: I was laying on my living room floor right in front of the TV watching. <laughs> Enjoyed every minute of it, too. Still amazing to think about today. After Neil and Buzz had stepped out on the moon, they were exploring and doing some things, and I stepped outside to look at the moon and think about their humans up there right now on that. Now, it actually,
3: uh, at, after landing, when they went out for EVA, I was at, actually went to Buzz Aldrin's home because I was his backup. And I took, you know, the checklist uh, that gave me, you know, the events that were going to be going on during their EVA. And I was there really to support his family and letting them know what was going on mm. and also to be there in case anything went wrong.
1: This question is for Fred. What was the mood in mission control like the day Apollo 11 was going to attempt the moon landing?
3: They were controlled and involved with dealing with the uh, getting ready to make the landing, uh, loading up the right stuff in the computer. And then, as they went down monitoring the trajectory and how it was going, so the only uh, you want to call it, frantic, was when those alarms started coming on very, very right. low. <clears throat> and very quickly, uh, the guidance and nav people who were tied to Draper Labs were really the vehicle, the people who uh, designed, developed the whole guidance and nav system. And the computer quickly uh, dispensed with the alarms, as you heard, uh, they got to go each time. And it was a matter of the computer was being overworked at that time. And what it does was skipping uh, cycles every 20 milliseconds, a cycle. And that was causing those alarms, which actually didn't affect how the vehicle flew or anything of that nature. And in fact, on my website, uh, there's a report that describes that. But no, it was, it was a case. They had both the landing radar on, they had the rendezvous radar on. And others are also prepared to have to do an abort, where right. so they wanted the rendezvous radar on, radar on to support the rendezvous if they had to, and after boarding, and it was just too much, too much stuff on the computer was having <laughs> to handle during that period. The way the operating system worked uh, was every 20 milliseconds, it did a comp cycle and it got too busy. It, it was, there was a priority uh, built in the system It would start dropping Things that would compute, but continue dealing with the most important things, which then obviously was like flight control. So I'm saying, from the standpoint of the pilot, Neil, he didn't notice anything flying the vehicle. It was just a matter of these alarms saying, the computer, I'm busy.
2: I just bought a 128 gigabyte little thumb drive, little memory stick for my computer. How much memory did that computer have on the lunar module, Fred? One-tenth of a megabyte.
1: That is insane.
2: <laughs> Hand, all hand-wired.
3: It was a hand-wired. The core of it looked like a bunch of spaghetti <laughs> 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 wired together.
1: Fred, what do you remember when you, Jim Lovell, and Ken Manley were chosen for Apollo 13?
3: Uh, well, I, I don't remember anything. It was ordained, really. Uh, there was a three-emission cycle. So, normally, if you backed up eight, you would fly 11. And so, normally, I would have been the lunar module pilot for 11. Mm-hmm. But Mike Collins, who had been pulled off of eight, that's how I got that slot in the backup, because of a neck injury, recovered. And Mike had se- seniority. He was in a group ahead of mine. And so, Deke allowed him to get back in the groove. And so, that's how Mike ended up flying 11. And I, I ended up serving another backup assignment. I was Buzz's backup on 11. Mm. So then it was ordained that I would fly 14. I knew I would get a flight, but I thought it was going to be 14. What changed then to get 13 was the crew that had been announced for 14 was Al Shepard, Stu Rusa, and Ed Mitchell, and Al, and who had not flown not flown for quite a few years from his Mercury days, and Stu had never done a training cycle as a backup, which is the normal route you got up to be primed. So headquarters decided they needed more training time. They overruled Deke, in fact, in that three-mission cycle. So Deke asked Jim Lovell if he'd move a mission ahead to 13, and Jim, of course, said, great, we'll, we'll take the earlier flight. So that's how we ended up with it. We actually did it on a two-mission cycle, <laughs> which was the only time that was done, incidentally.
1: Now, as you can see behind me, and I know my listeners can't because this is an audio-only release, I have a full-scale Lego model of the Saturn V rocket. cost me a small fortune. This question is for Fred. What was it like to see the real thing up close in person? And the most important second part to this question is, can you please walk my listeners through what it's like to have that rocket ignite and propel you into space?
3: Okay, you could feel things even before it lit the engines. Uh, they, you know, they did tests, they gimbal the engines. You were way up on the top of the stack. You were up in the capsule, so it kind of exaggerates a little bit. But you could feel that rumbling of just the engines gimbling. And then, of course, when it lit, you could feel the pressure. You know that you're being pressed into the couch. There was any, it was, it was moving, and there, you know, there was definitely acceleration, but not a big acceleration. You'd feel much more acceleration than a. Uh, the day fighter, if you're on the runway, if you popped it in the afterburner going down mm-hmm. the takeoff. But slowly at the, the acceleration built up because those five engines are consuming literally tons of propellant and oxidizer every second. So the thing's getting lighter. You know, it was a six million pound booster when you lift it off, and the engines were seven and a half million pounds of thrust. So the, the G kept building up. The most unusual motion. For me, from all my client experience, was the uh, left to right sort of jerking around from the engines gimbling. The big engines without the four outer ones gimbled to keep it steered right. And even a slight motion they caused, of course, again, was exaggerated because we're way up on the top of this thing, the top of the stack and the capsule. So exaggerated that motion quite a bit. So that was the only other thing. As far as G levels, maximum of four and a half Gs airplanes that flew normally uh, in those days. my days was seven and a half Gs in combat maneuvering, actually sitting upright in a seat, ejection seat. So it was worse to take in that position than laying on the couch. And, of course, today's fighters, you can get up to about nine Gs. So, uh, you know, the G levels wasn't that uh, extreme in any case, and the rest of the ride was pretty smooth. Second stage, we lost one engine. That was a big concern, as we saw knew the engine that was... Had gone was would they burn would we burn too much fuel getting in orbit and miss our chance to go to the moon that was a, <clears throat> the worst thing we worried about at that time but uh they figured out pretty quick there was enough margin in the third stage after we got in orbit to enable us to make that next burn to start us onto the moon
1: on april 13th the mission suffered catastrophic damage from a ruptured oxygen tank. Can you walk my listeners through those, what I can only imagine must have been incredibly terrifying moments?
3: Well, the uh, explosion happened. We knew it there was something to do with oxygen tank, too, because from the instrument panel, when I got back up to look at it, so see, I was still in the lunar module at this time and heard the large bang. And the thrusters were firing, the 100-pound reaction control thrusters that normally kept your attitude and control the vehicle. They were firing the whole attitude, I guess, from the imp- impulse when that huge panel flew off, which we, d- we did not know about till days later when right. we got to view it the first time. So that was going on, and obviously something not normal. But I got the instrument panel, and I could tell very quickly from the readings that we lost oxygen tank 2 which was just a sick feeling in my stomach at that time because I knew that meant an abort, even if nothing else went wrong. We would not go in the lunar orbit and we would not land. So we went from there into a series of troubleshooting that was work, we were working with mission control to try to then stop what became aware became aware of a slow leak in the second tank, auction tank one. And uh, of course, that, that was a big problem then. It became now that fact that if it leaked all the way, there would be no oxygen to feed the fuel cells for power. That was our primary power source was three fuel cells. So we we messed around for about 45, 50 minutes with Mission Control trying various ways to see if there was a way to isolate that leak. And about that time they gave up, they had run out of ideas. And Jim Lovell and I left poor Jack all alone and we headed for the lunar module to get it powered up. We knew the command module was going to die. I mean, it will have to shut it down. Couldn't use up the small entry batteries. That would be all that was left for electric power. So we down to crank up the limbs so we'd have a place to live and have power and have communication and environmental system to work, that kind of thing, to hang on, to buy time, really.
1: This is a question that I can't believe I get to ask someone. And as a fan of the space program from Apollo to now Artemis, uh, Fred, tell me, you are one of 24 human beings who have to ever go to the moon. What does the moon look like to human eyes up
3: close? Well, it, it looks pretty unhospitable. <laughs> it doesn't have much color, just shades of, uh, as people have described, gray. It has some lighter areas that are more fresher, uh, where meteorites, you know, meteorites are of some size, probably granular, hitting it every day, today. Some of the uh, older ones, of course, were faded out. And as you can see, crumbled and that kind of thing. Just craters upon craters upon craters. It's just been, obviously been hit through a uh, billion, really billions of years to get to the look it has today. And the backside is unusual as we, as we swept around because it doesn't have many of the big dark areas like the front side. So this tells you that some bigger chunks uh, hit the side facing earth than had hit the backside. Mm-hmm. And I did get some good, I shot some pictures while going on the backside of Tsiakoski, which is one the Russians got the name, because they had a first unmanned vehicle that went around and shot pictures of the mm-hmm. backside. And the Sea of Moscow with two very prominent features. that I got good pictures of, uh, we were up at a higher altitude than the normal missions, which would have entered, we would have entered in at 60 miles altitude. We were at about 135 miles above the moon as we went by it, so we got a little broader view of the that part of the backside that we were shooting pictures of. Like I said, it just that wouldn't look like a good place to camp out. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, so even at uh,
1: 135 miles above the lunar surface, can you still make out a great amount of detail?
3: No, no, you, yeah, you had great de- There's no air. <laughs> so yeah. it's, it's a vacuum, so yeah, you had a beautiful view of the features, that, you know, up to a certain size. There were features, as we found out when people land, they were Like I said, there were craters upon craters upon craters, right down to the very small size, When they got down to landings, there'd be very small craters, and some of them were never visible from the photography we had done from the lunar orbiter. Mm-hmm. They were below the resolution of the pictures that took from that, and that's what the problem was, like Neil had to change the where he landed. In fact, every, every landing that was made had to be moved slightly from where the computer would have taken them, because they were still craters and meteors and rocks rather from the impacts scattered mm-hmm. around to make the place the computer would have landed them um, unsafe
1: when the order was given to get the spaceship down to 12 amps to preserve what power was left how cold did it get in there
3: we were down about 12 amps uh, power on a 30 volt dc system so we were pretty low and that's what caused us to, the vehicle was not designed with enough thermal blankets to make it a good good thermos bottle if you will that, collect for that much only that much heat being generated i don't know exactly the temperature we didn't have a temperature gauge in a lamp it froze the water tanks in the command module they were frozen it found still frozen when it was recovered after entry on board the carrier and inspected it water right. tanks were frozen still after entry Wow. Uh, i would guess we had some warmth for my three bodies uh after a day or two, we all stayed in the limb. Little, the machinery that was running, not very much, but that generated warmth. We were probably above freezing in the LEM, uh, somewhere in like the mid-30s, probably, mid, mid-high 30s.
1: Now, based on what I've read about the mission, and of course, you know, it was covered in great detail in the film, you developed a severe urinary tract infection mid-flight, correct?
3: That's correct, about a... I first noticed it about a day and a half out before entry, mm. when I started having a problem with urinating, uh, burning, which is common with a uh, UTI, urinary mm. tract infection. Then, then a little late, later into it, I developed uh, chills and fever.
1: How long did it take you to recover from that infection?
3: I I recovered uh, from the standpoint of uh, and, well immediately. You know, went to work. <laughs> we got down. We had to write part of a mission report and had to attend some public events and that kind of thing, but I had to take shots in the buttock area, two a day, for about two weeks mm. to uh, to really get rid of it.
1: Obviously, Apollo 13 will be known as the successful failure, with some saying that returning the crew to Earth was the most successful task NASA accomplished next to, of course, Apollo 11. Fred, what do you remember entering Earth's atmosphere?
3: Well, first of all, we had the Lowest G level of all the entries. We ended up still a little shallow. So we were under six Gs. Most uh, all the other entries were over six. Kind of the uh, most worrisome time for me in the flight was frankly approaching entry, which is not carried much in media. It wasn't a good thing to show in the movie. It was too complex. But you have to remember when we shut down the mothership, uh, it was a dead vehicle. We're going to have to power it back up, and there was no procedure to power it up. So they had to invent that procedure, which they worked on for, I guess, about three and a half days, perfected, testing it in the simulators with other astronauts uh, to get it right. And then it had to be read up at about 17 hours before entry, by 17 hours before we're going to hit the air at 25,000 miles an hour. They read it up, a Jack copied on uh, backs and fronts of uh, checklists, uh, mm-hmm. books, uh, because we had no blank paper. So he wrote and scribbed it step-by-step uh, step and numbered the pages. And Jack and I were gonna execute that power-up while Jim stayed in the lunar module to maintain attitude control, communication, and that sort of thing. And Jack and I talked our way through the procedure several times, a number of times, to get a flavor of, and feeling for the flow of the activation, but we were not allowed to start that activation till two and a half hours before we hit the air.
1: That is just unbelievably incredible right there.
3: Because we only had those three small entry batteries, mm. 44 amp hour batteries each, and they did not want to drain too much out of those batteries. So they, That's why they pushed us so late to start that power up. There was concerned because when we first got into that cold, dark, a capsule using flashlights, we know that first of all, the instrument panel was covered with water. So Jack got out a couple of towels and we wiped off the instrument panel to see the instruments. And Jack thought about Apollo 1 fire and probably water was everywhere behind the panels on wiring and whatever. Mm-hmm. So the first step in that procedure was to push in all the circuit breakers and two panels, one on each side of the spacecraft that Jack had pulled out when he shut it down. And Jack said, well, I tell you what, let's push only six circuit breakers in at a time and stop. And I'll call it, you know, I'll give you a countdown. And we'll stop a minute and see if we smell insulation burning. Mm -hmm. Electric short. So that's the way we've got all the circuit breakers. And it felt pretty good then that nothing had, uh, had they'd done a good job on the rewiring, which was required after that fire including potting up the, the interfaces at all the connectors, which was waterproof material, MELCOR. So uh, we were the electric harness was safe from being, you know, affected water. So we got the vehicle powered up right on through that procedure with no errors in the procedure. So there were lights that came on, warning lights, but they had carefully posted that in the procedure that when you make this next step, a light's gonna come on, so we didn't get stopped. By any of those things worrying about something wrong mm. and proceeded right on through it. And Jack got a star alignment and got a platform back up. And uh, we were pretty well set then to execute the entry. We jettisoned a limb only 45 minutes before we hit the air. We cocked off sideways a little bit when we blew the tunnel area with added pressure. I'd give it a kick to make sure it cleared us on the way in. That entry was otherwise normal. We got rained on a little bit at the front of entry when the, G, when the G's build up, a little light rain shower from stuff coming out from behind the panels of water. That's about the only really unusual thing. And Like I said, we ended up shallow, so we, had to, we didn't even get to six G's on entry.
1: It's been shown in films and documentaries, but the fact that we can safely negotiate the inferno of reentry is a magnificent achievement in engineering.
3: Well, it was it was a beautiful sight because uh, when when we're in the capsule, uh, we're looking backwards, so we're looking at our trail. Of course, it changed as we first hit the air at speeds. Those speeds, you ionize the molecules initially, and so it's almost like a whiteout. It's a white glow inside the vehicle as these particles are ionized, and then of course, it's as you bite in uh, with the capsule getting hot, uh, there's a fiery red trail that develops. That gradually, as you get deeper in, changes to more orange trail. And finally, a sort of a wispy white trail uh, down to the time about you put the drugs out. Mm-hmm. And then uh, that way till about 10,000 feet, that's when the uh, main big shoots are deployed.
1: It's dramatized in the film, but for the official record, how long did it take you to reestablish comms with Houston after reentry?
3: It's interesting, it's one of the things, the real trauma of that uh, so-called elongated blackout was for people on the ground. We were not even aware of it. You don't mm. pay attention to that. I mean, uh, the, you don't really do anything with mission control during that entry period. You're on your own. And I was not aware that this blackout had even extended. Finally, I guess they made enough calls that uh, Jack finally uh, answered them on one of them We got that finally got through. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, what do you guys want?
3: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right, right, yeah, right.
1: Okay, Duval Nation, we're going to go ahead and take a small break right here, but we will be right back with the conclusion of this historic interview with Bill Moore and Apollo 13 astronaut Fred Hayes. May I suggest you take this time to refresh that drink and take some super long deep breaths, you know, yep, Clouseau style.
3: Out with the bad air, in with the good. Out with the bad
2: air, in with the good.
1: Please give your attention to a few friends of my show, and we will be right back.
2: Enjoy listening to podcasts and ever wonder, can I make a podcast? But it seems so complicated
1: and good audio production can take time. What if there was a way to create an amazing podcast easily? Well, now there is introducing podcasting made easy from Podtastic Audio. My production team will handle your entire audio production, allowing you to be the star of your show. This is podcasting made easy how easy well so easy you don't even have to press record now that's easy Your listeners are waiting. Let's deliver sign up for a free strategy call today at podcasticaudio.com easy Duval nation Derek and Mindy Duval here to talk about jerky pro the standard in premium beef jerky products
2: the Derek Duval Show and Derek and Mindy's Fun With Movies is proud to be sponsored by the team at Jerky Pro.
1: As a veteran, I am always the first to support veteran-owned businesses. Setting up shop in 1987 and founded by military and paramilitary veterans, they have set the bar for how beef jerky is processed, flavored, packaged, and sold.
2: With strict quality control standards, Jerky Pro offers many flavors that are sure to please any beef jerky connoisseur. From the standard original flavor to honey glazed, peppered, teriyaki, sweet barbecue, or if you're brave enough, the fierce red hot, there are many flavors guaranteed to entice your palate.
1: Offered in various sized packaging, use promo code dubal 37 all in capital letters, at checkout to receive a 5% discount. Remember folks, if your beef jerky is not making your mouth water, then it's not Jerky Pro
2: Beef Jerky. Jerky Pro, the standard in premium beef jerky products. Hey, it's Presley Tennant, and you're listening to The Derek Duvall Show. You can find my brand new EP 600 Miles on all streaming platforms right now.
3: I want to take that three miles! I guess it's hard to hear a heartbreak 600 miles away
1: Teachers, do you ever have these feelings or have been told these things? Do you want Kleenex for your
0: classroom? Maybe you should think about buying your own with your own money. You get the summer off, you can have a second job. Do you really need a pay raise? Oh, do you need to use the restroom? Maybe you can do that in the three minutes while students are changing classes. Boy, sure hope your room doesn't descend into Lord of the Flies in that time.
1: Oh, things are going pretty good for one. Surprise! Budget cuts! Well, you're in luck because we've got a book just for you. Hi, everyone. It's Katie Kinder, educator, speaker, and author of Untold Teaching Truths. I invite you to purchase my book and join this journey as we talk about the wild world of public education. Part memoir, part strategy, it is available on BookBaby, Amazon, or wherever books are sold. Teach on, Warriors. We've got this. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Cam, the Provocateur. And together we are the Spy Hearts Podcast. Every Tuesday we decode the best and the worst of spy cinema to decipher if they make the knock list. That's right, the knock list is the need to see official classics of the spy genre. The best of the best, so to speak. Nobody does it better. From Bourne to Bond and Powers to Palmer, you can bet we will cover it. So subscribe now and revel in the audio equivalent of a smooth martini. Just search for SpyHards, that's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S on all major podcast apps. And let's just hope you find us before we find you. Hey, this is Patrick Baker, and you are listening to The Derek Duvall Show. Check out my new single, available on all major streaming platforms, and visit my site at patrickbakermusic.com.
2: You can find Perfectly Flawed on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or wherever books are sold.
1: Welcome back to episode 142 of the Derek Devall Show. Let's get right back to it with the conclusion of our historic interview with author and historian Bill Moore and Apollo 13 astronaut Fred Hayes. So, Bill, I want to talk to you about your book, Never Panic Early, An Apollo 13 Astronaut's Journey. First off, where did the idea come from to write this book?
2: Well, I had just finished working on a book with a gentleman here in Oklahoma who was a retro fire officer in mission control. And I was talking to Fred about something. And I I told him, I said, I had just finished working with with Tom Weichel, and I was just letting you know, if you ever want to work on your book, I'll be glad to help you. So we we talked a little bit more about it, and eventually he said, "Well, when do you want to start?" And we we went from there. Bill, how
1: did you and Fred Hayes meet?
2: It was at one of the space events. I think it was probably the first time was the Oklahoma Air and Space Hall of Fame that they held here every year in Oklahoma City. At, at that time, it's called the Oklahoma. Air and Space Museum. It's now the Science Museum of Oklahoma. Right.
3: That was about, that was over 20 years ago.
2: Yeah, it was back at, in the, the, time, the back in the 90s. The That's right.
3: Yeah. I, I had my granddaughter uh, Dakota with me. fact, uh, I had a picture of you, I and Dakota at that <laughs> event. Yeah.
2: Yeah. She was, she was a little girl and now she's out of college and working her career.
1: <laughs> How did you get Gene Krantz to write the foreword for the book?
2: I called
3: Gene and talked to him and had the uh, su- the script at the time where it was sent to him to look at, to make sure he felt good about being, being you know, willing to write that introduction. He was very happy to do it.
1: This question is for Bill. Did you talk to Jim Lovell as he is the only other surviving astronaut from that mission to get his input
2: from the book? No, that, that actually was an email. He'd sent some emails to Fred and, and Fred was sharing those with me. And I, I found them fascinating. He, He wanted to be sure to let everyone know that Apollo 13 still holds the record of being furthest away from Earth Mm. because all the other landing missions went into orbit around the moon. So they were about a 60-mile high uh, orbit, whereas, I don't know, how far out did you go, Fred, when you looped around the moon? We
3: were were about 135 miles. Well, I think farther from Earth came from other reasons. The moon also was. The moon does not fly a perfect circle around the Earth. It's an elliptic. And so it was at one of its farthest points from Earth itself. At the time, we then went 130 miles above it. We don't hone the, hold the record, obviously, except for man. Mm-hmm. Uh, because Artemis, as you know, Artemis 1 looped way, way up, right. up high behind moon. Sure. 70,000 miles or 40,000-something long ways.
2: Mm-hmm. And that's when their record will be broken as is- on a future well, the, next, mission. the next artist's mission will break the record.
1: Now, Fred, as an avid reader and documentary nut about Apollo 13 and the Apollo program, for my listeners who are not as savvy in their knowledge about the mission and have only seen the film Apollo 13, can you give them an idea of what was fact and fiction between the real life events and the film?
3: Uh, well, the movie carried the basic theme of the story very well. I thought that is that uh, you had these people in, in trouble, serious trouble. And a team uh, was working to uh, diligently and gave the impression of, think, the amount of work being done by a number of people to figure out things, workarounds, to enable us to make it back home. Uh, So I thought the story of that with a good Hollywood ending uh, went well in the movie. Now, the one thing uh, Ron did, uh, and I complained about a few things he had in the movie, uh, exaggerating my throw-up. (laughs) Jim Lovell hugging me, uh, (laughs) Jack Schweiger and I having an argument, those kind of things. And he said, he said, well, he said, NASA, I said, you know, he he read the mission report as as other people had, Uh, NASA had given them all the uh, air to ground radio transmissions that he had reviewed. And he told me, he said, I listened to all of that. And it never seemed to me you ever had a problem. So he said, I wanted to humanize you in some way. They so said, that's why I added in those drama and uh, drama and characterization. I did those kinds of things to uh, make, make you seem more, uh, uh, call it humanized. And uh, so that was my, and of course, of course I knew they were limited in the movie. Like I said, they could not nowhere in the media and the movie could they have explained the trauma of that late, Power up of the command module just before entry, which really was precarious times. But there's no way of doing that in a movie; been right. too complicated. So he kind of had to pick the pieces. Oh, and he dramatized the burns. We did manual. We did two manual maneuvers with propulsion on the way home to correct the trajectory. All look literally lining up with a view out the window, and then manually controlling the vehicle while we executed those uh, engine firings. And the vehicle did not move uh, hardly a degree or two, and of course he had the one, he showed one of those, and he had the earth going up and down in the window like we we're about to lose control. Mm. <laughs> that was mm. another one of those exaggerations, if you will.
1: <laughs> you gotta love Hollywood. Speaking of which, uh, Fred, what was it like to meet Tom Hanks, Bill Paxton, Gary Sinise, Ed Harris, and Kevin Bacon?
3: Surprised somewhat. You know, they just, they seem like just normal people. The, the, the characters you mentioned, they, they weren't the, the typical glamorous Hollywood romantic movie type people either. So they're, they're characters either in the movie or movies they had been in. So, no, they uh, they didn't strike me as, uh, you know, if, if they're not known they were Hollywood actors, I thought there was no difference in any other person I might have met.
1: Did Bill Paxson, you know, who portrayed you in the film, did you and he get to spend much time together getting to know each other?
3: No, not, no, no. Uh, I met. I got to meet him because the uh, second visit Ron Howard made to uh, Kennedy Space Center came with camera people to look at places they might be shooting some of the scenes, and he t- he brought along Bill Paxton to meet me, and I got to spend the day with Bill, mm. and I kind of gave him a, a blue ribbon tour of Kennedy Space Center, and of course, mostly what I had to show him was what. What's going on with shuttle activity, space shuttle, right. in part to him, because he was not very knowledgeable, uh, interested in the space program, as, say, Ron Hanks had been, or Tom Hanks had been. So I made it, showed him the working places, whether preparing an orbiter and uh, OPF, which is like a hangar, and before it moves out to the pad, and took him out to the launch pad, and showed him the number of people and the kind of activity going on. To make sure he knew that this was not as simple as uh, Hollywood, where you go push one button and launch a rocket. took a lot of dedicated, hardworking people to get these things ready to go and be safe. And so that's why I spent most of the day with him. It was interesting. I took him to the new facility that had not been quite completed, the space station preparation facility. And uh, they had sort of tunnels beneath the normal floor where the vehicles would be where they could route plumbing and wiring to come up through the floor to the test stations and we're sort of stooped over walking down through these underground passageways and his remarks all at once was said wow he said this is where we should have filmed alien
1: (laughs) (laughs) that's fantastic uh that's a great great movie too Okay, I think the best final question about Apollo 13, the film, is, you know, Fred, did you enjoy the finished product that Ron Howard finally released?
3: Oh, I thought it was great. Obviously, the general public did. It was a very popular film. It's still being, occasionally still being shown As somebody had called me, and I said, I just saw it, and I just saw it again. So it's still being played on reruns in various ways, not through a number of channels. So, no, it was a highly successful uh, movie, I'm sure, uh, financially. Successful, not just U.S., but across uh, certainly Europe.
1: You know, it's funny when I was in the Navy, stationed on my aircraft carrier, Apollo 13. It's on the ship's entertainment channels at least once or twice a week without fail. <laughs> okay, Bill. What has the reception to the book been like?
2: It's it's been fabulous. We have uh, gone traveled several places for book signings. Houston at the Space Center, there um, the line was unbelievably long. It just wrapped around the entire Visitor Center out the door. Yeah, and, they kept it, uh,
3: kept it open longer, in fact.
2: <laughs> and then uh, Dallas at the Museum of Flight. We've been to, um, we went Tulsa. to the Smithsonian yeah. at, at, uh, at Dulles. And we went to, where else, Fred? Uh, New York? Well,
3: uh, went to New York uh, at the Intrepid Museum and uh, Tulsa. Tulsa Air mm-hmm. and Spaces.
2: And then um, also... What's the museum there uh, on Long Island,
3: Fred? Oh, the Cradle uh, of Aviation.
2: Cradle of Aviation. Yeah, mm-hmm. right. Yeah. And our first one, which was so appropriate, was School of Engineering, College of Engineering at OU. <laughs> <laughs> that's right.
1: If my memory is correct, the actual Apollo 13 capsule Odyssey is in a museum in Kansas, right?
3: That's correct. That's there. Yeah, we had a book signing there, Bill.
2: That's right. Yeah, we did. It's a lot of fun, too, Derek. Two of our locations where we had book signings, one was there on the Intrepid in New York. We were right underneath the Enterprise Mm -hmm. that Fred flew doing our book signing. And then at the Cosmosphere, we sat in front of the Apollo 13 command module doing a book signing. So, I mean, it doesn't get much better than that.
1: You're right. It truly doesn't. I want to talk to you about your project, Oklahomans in Space. For my listeners who are not familiar with it, can you please explain it to them?
2: Sure. I retired from the Oklahoma Historical Society, and one of my projects there was about Oklahomans in Space and interviewed the astronauts from Oklahoma or or who had Oklahoma connections like Fred. And they would tell me, hey, you you need to talk to, you know, uh, John Aaron, who was in mission control. He he grew up in Oklahoma, you know, and, and so I made all these connections and did all these interviews with engineers, uh, you know, stretched to even national news reporters. These All these connections to these folks who were part of the space program and who were from Oklahoma or had connections to Oklahoma. And so um, the director wanted me to do a book about it as well as the documentary series I was doing so we have a nice coffee table book from that and it's we had a great event at the oklahoma history center where all these folks came up to uh to recognize all the oklahoma contributions to the space program so we're still gathering all of the contacts we have and i i'll get one maybe once a month or so someone will call me and say hey did you know my uncle was part of NASA or was part of a contractor working for NASA. So it's it's been a great project, and I, I just love doing this for my home state.
1: Which leads into your other book, and you briefly brought it up earlier, which is called Retrofire, the story of Tom Weichel from Colony, Oklahoma to the Moon. Where did the inspiration come from to write that book?
2: Well, it, it, it really did come from the Oklahoma Space Project because As I listened to these stories while I was working on that project, I was thinking, boy, there are so many stories that need to be told and and preserved for future generations. And Tom was right here in Oklahoma, so I started with Tom.
1: (laughs) So, Fred, we're going to move on to another incredible chapter of your life and your career. For my listeners, can you tell us what it's like to fly and command the Enterprise
3: Space Shuttle? Well, first of all, it was, a uh, from, from my standpoint personally and, and career sense, uh, it was a highlight of, for me of my career uh, <clears throat> because I, I actually had left the astronaut office for four years and joined Aaron Cohen, who was the uh, manager of the Orbiter Project Office. So I was more in program management and oversight through the design development of the Orbiter for four years. Before I got assigned then to be one of the two crews to fly Enterprise, which was the first one we got manufactured, and so that was a great womb to tomb kind of uh, experience. To because I was I was not that involved in the design process in Apollo when I joined the program uh, astronaut program in Apollo. The design phase had already gone by, so most of my time was spent in the uh, like I said, fourteen months at Grumman was testing the vehicles that were being manufactured and assembled to get them ready to ship to Kennedy to fly. So I missed design phase in Apollo, but I was there from day one on shuttle. Mm. So it was, uh, like I said, a great, to me, a great thing to get nominated to be that commander of the first crew. Now there was some, uh, for me standpoint of pressure, I felt a lot more pressure, personal pressure, and uh, that day, we approached to release it the first time uh, for several reasons. One, we had obviously obviously had a lot of banking on it. We uh, had to announce a two-year gap uh, due to tile problems before we would make the orbital flight. So we already had announced a two-year slip in the program, which was not good news. And we had changed presidents that January. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was when Jimmy Carter came in. And uh, shuttle was really Nixon's program. So you're always concerned about how the new administration is going to take to what some other president has put in place and what support you might get. And we're already seeing some lagging support, certainly not the Apollo degree of support in our early budget cycles. We've seen getting to the the point we were at in shuttle. So uh, I worried that if I had crashed shuttle. That might end be the end of the shuttle program right there because we did not have a backup vehicle. That had been deleted for cost saving. In fact, we had a black backup vehicle for that test program, which you like to have in test programs, about several vehicles, mm-hmm. and uh, we had to cancel that vehicle because of the budget. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it would have been further slow up in the program to uh, to get it done. And I worried it could be canceled in that time. The workers, incidentally, jokingly. Felt that too because the day I was climbing up the ladder to go climb into the ejection seat, there was a picture alongside the wall there, and it had these figures wearing suits, blue suits like we were wearing, had a helmet on, visor down, oxygen manse dangling so you couldn't tell who the, they were, mm. and two of them sitting on these big sweepers that sweep city streets. <laughs> and the saying there said, If you screw this up, this is your next job. <laughs> how does she handle? It handled beautifully. I mean, it uh, was crisp. When I say crisper or tighter, think the term is handling qualities. How well, uh, how tight an airplane is in terms of control. How precise you can uh, set a bank angle, or control an airspeed, or an altitude. And it was much better in that sense for handling qualities than anything we had seen in engineering simulators through the development phase, or, of course, in our trainers, either the moving based trainer or certainly the Gulfstream shuttle training aircraft. So it was a much better flying vehicle than anything we had seen in uh, through our training uh, time. And uh, obviously, I was very pleased with that. Uh, we had one emergency, pseudo, and I would say emergency, we had one warning Light come on right at separation. It was like a, a 1g spike when you when I pushed the button to fire the bolts that cut us free, because we were we were cocked up on the 747 which had lift, generated lift, and so we got an initial impetus from that as well when we separated. And uh, some reason there must have been a loose material that was sold later caught loose material in one of the computers that caused the short. And so one of the four main computers sh- that basically failed and gave us a big red light on the screen and I crossed, I X crossed one of the CRT screens. That was the one computer had failed. But Gordo, Gordo Fullerton, who was with me, uh, I, he, the way it works is I just let him handle that. And I worried about flying the machine and didn't, didn't affect anything on how the vehicle flew. And so Gardo, unfortunately, missed a few minutes of the early flight, worried about safing that and pulling circuit breakers and things to make sure that bad computer was really cut out of the loop.
1: So this next question is for the both of you. Of all the movies about the Apollo program, which is your favorite? Uh,
3: Yeah, I'm prejudiced. I'd say Apollo 13. (laughs) (laughs) It has to be Apollo 13. (laughs) (laughs) We
1: just watched one recently, First Man. Have you seen that one?
3: Yeah, I've seen I've seen First Man, and uh, I think it was it was better because they they were after a different thing. They were after characterizing more deeply the character of Neil mm-hmm. and uh, family and that sort of thing. So it was a, to me it was a whole different uh, kind of movie mm-hmm. than Apollo thirteen and uh, some exaggeration of it. Uh, his X fifteen, the trauma of that flight. Now there was trauma, but it wasn't like the movie showed. But otherwise, uh, you know, I enjoyed the movie, mm-hmm. but I it was, it was on a different cast than Apollo 13, which is right. talking about a crisis, if you will.
1: Fred, what do you think of the Artemis program and then, you know, the lead up to putting humans back on the moon?
3: Well, I'm happy that they're back at it. I worry about, as has been ever since Apollo, having the continued support financially uh, through uh, Congress and administration. To uh, keep try to keep it on track, because things get delayed, and, and unfortunately, when when the, the budget doesn't support a program plan, that's what happens. You end up with slippage and uh, projected overruns and that kind of thing. That again, they criticize NASA about when guess who caused it? <laughs> the <Not to laughs> funding the program, but NASA of course can't say that. The other thing I worry a little bit about is that they have a much bigger uh, integration job than we had in Apollo, because they got so many parts, pieces and parts, like it takes three launches to do the landing, the the Artemis plus two SpaceX launches. They have more players with the European Space Agency with the uh, service module portion of it. North of Grumman with the thing that circles in orbit around the moon, the the capsule of course, which is actually very mature, uh, things been around quite a while since Constellation Program. Mm-hmm. And uh, so you got to mesh all those things together that are going to work together. Many of them will not see each other till they're at the moon. They won't be mated on the ground or anything, or been processed at the Cape all at the same time. Mm-hmm. Same problem with the space station. Although it's a little easier to deal with something if you have it in an Earth orbit than dealing with a problem that it doesn't fit together right <laughs> at the moon. Uh, so it has a bigger challenge in that respect, in my mind. That's a management uh, program management problem issue. Have good inter- interface control documents is what we call them that make sure they do fit mechanically and uh, in every way. Data, plumbing uh, uh, when you hook them up, that made them. That's the kind other of things.
1: This question's for Fred. If you were in charge of the space program, what would you do differently?
3: Well, I'd be I'd be doing lots of things. I'd be doing uh, more unmanned flights as well to visit uh, moons, like we, we think there's one with volcanic activity around Jupiter, uh, one we think there's water below the surface, and similar to one of the large satellites around Saturn. So you'd be doing, you're doing much more to better understand uh, how things got put together in our own uh, solar system uh, from Earth, I think eventually if you could, and it's an economic Issue of funding to have the moon base. The moon base, if you had to put a telescope there looking outward, it would obviously uh, be much better, just as we've seen with the ones we're able to put in orbit to mm-hmm. get away from the air uh, pollution, the light pollution that we have here on Earth. So you could do a lot better science from looking out, looking outward from the moon, as well as what you could do uh, more around the moon itself. Although I, I don't think the answers we get there are as interesting as I see with some of the uh, planets we have still around out there in the solar system. Now, nice to be a note about Jupiter. You know, it's actually our closest uh, planet is Jupiter, not Mars, and how, how it got to the fix it got into. You know, it's a boiling, a boiling pot, really, of heat. that makes it very difficult. I think the Russians had landed something that lasted a very short while before it got too hot. It's like 600 degrees, I think, at the surface.
1: And then, of course, you know, that leads into my next question, and that is, you know, as a former astronaut, what are your thoughts on SpaceX and Amazon and the space race competition?
3: Well, I think the more the merrier. And obviously, uh, SpaceX has been directly in line. Uh, It's been a a lifesaver. I've kept worrying for years there where we shut down shuttle and we're totally dependent on the Russians because if something politically got upset, we lose that way to get up and down. The only way to get up and down. So SpaceX, obviously, has more than fulfilled an answer to that, and an incredibly launch uh, success rate for both the unmanned supplies as well as taking people up and down. In fact, they've if, if had one mission where there was no astronaut on board. <laughs> it <with> was that song, <laughs> and all uh, written back to the space station. So no, it's been done incredible job, and it's kind of I might say more directly in line with the program. Now the others that have sprung up Blue Origin are more in the I'll call it the uh, a business to uh, take people up of different sorts to experience being in space for a short time and weightlessness and the view and that sort of thing. They're more in the, I call it I won't call it exactly tourist business. Cause I guess it would be a high-priced to tourist business. But the more people experience and uh, get interested and have interest in space, and many of these people are influential people, so that can't hurt either.
1: Fred, do you keep up with the other Apollo or Gemini astronauts who are still with us?
3: Directly, no, except Jim Lovell. I just talked to him the other day. Uh, we, we converse occasionally. Uh Otherwise, I see them at anniversary type events. Like these museums hold. We did the big one we just had at uh, the that was mentioned. Where I, as a sideline, I did a book signing there, but a number of the uh, the old gang was uh, there for that. I've lost the only one I kept. Two actually, I kept in touch with over the years living here in Houston, and just, he just passed away. Was Walt Cunningham, who I was with a number of times a year supporting a not-for-profit an angel group that supports handicapped children in houston we did a number of events and delivered christmas presents and that kind of thing and big gala fundraisers those kind of things for that uh, thing i saw uh, him very often but he just passed away so i'm the only remaining apollo vintage guy left in houston
1: so what is next for the both of you is there another book is there a documentary?
3: I'm not planning another book. I did uh, create a website through the help of a very good website designer, Logan Jaron. And uh, he's a space hipster and uh, lives in the state of Washington. And uh, it's active now, uh, and I wrote it, uh, sorted, I uh, um, wrote it, but sorted the website because people, web, uh, space hipsters primarily said the book was too short. It wasn't long enough, there wasn't enough material. Uh, through our editing process with Smithsonian, we, they would, they'd delete about 50 pages. So the website was created, provides narrative, provides a lot of pictures, and provides archival data. I decided that's a good place to park material that normally you might give to a university or give to a museum, which has a hard time really putting it out to the public to view or, or play with. It'd be useful to somebody writing a story that might want to reference it too. So I digitized a lot of that, and it's on the website. Like my daily diary, I kept 14 months handwritten while I was in the lunar module at Grumman. Mm-hmm. Memos, Ed Mitchell, myself, and Dave Ballard, a system engineer, wrote to Jim McDivitt as to the status of his lunar module through that process. When he flew Apollo 9, first 11 in orbit. A lot of handwritten notes to Aaron Cohen, the project manager on Orbiter project. Mm. So, uh, that, that a lot of that kind of stuff uh, in the website.
2: Bill, what about you? Yeah, I've got a couple of books and work working with a, another astronaut, and we're probably going to start working on his book. We haven't, you know, finalized it yet, so I, I hesitate to to put his name out there. But there are some other books I've wanted to do on on space, and one of them, a U.S. senator from Oklahoma, who was very influential in the Kennedy administration, and his name is Robert S. Kerr, and he was very influential in the development of space at, in those early days. So, I'm going to do some work on him, you know, just. I don't have enough time. There's so many projects to do.
1: (laughs) As we enter the final phase of the interview, I always like to ask one fun question, and that is, you know, what do you both do to relax? And Bill, we'll start with you.
2: (laughs) Write books. No, I, (laughs) you know, I love the space program. Like I mentioned at the beginning, it's just been a big part of my life. And I just like working with these folks and I'm heading up to Tulsa tomorrow. Eileen Collins is coming to the right. Tulsa Air and Space Museum, and so I'm going to go up there, and we're going to have an event at the uh, at the museum, and it'll be fun to visit with her. And so I just, I've been doing that. I'm on the board of directors for the Stafford Air and Space Museum in Weatherford, and that's just an amazing museum if you haven't seen it. It's grown so much, and it's going to change even more in the next few years with uh, Smithsonian-type exhibits, and so... It's. I'm just having fun doing that.
1: And Fred, what do you like to do? Relax.
3: Well, I'd say I still do it in public events. Again, many Zooms, but some in person. Uh, living in Houston, I get often calls from uh, Space Center Houston here. I just did one recently for a board of directors of a National Museum Association. For and I, I've talked four years now to a large teacher group that comes once a year to Space Center Houston, mostly math and science type teachers. So I've been a spokesman at one of their days. And children's groups, they have summer groups for, I think, 10th and 11th graders throughout Texas for about four or five days where they do projects, show them around activity around the Johnson Space Center. And I'll always have one session I speak to that group. So a lot of Zoom things. I have another one like the 13th of April with the Niagara Museum, a museum in Niagara. I have have interviews coming up with BBC. They're coming. Uh, they did a program on Apollo and they're now wanting to do it on a space shuttle. So this will be mm-hmm. mostly on approaching landing tests next week. That actually coming from England to uh, Houston. Otherwise, family. That's why I'm in Houston. There's, there's children here. In fact, one of them I'll have lunch with on Saturday, her uh, and her husband, a grand, grandchild, actually. Uh, of my son, who unfortunately uh, passed away. I just lost a son uh, in
1: oh, February. Man, I'm terribly sorry to hear that.
3: Yeah. So anyway, the uh, one of his children. And I have two daughters of my second wife, Pat, uh, who one's within about six blocks with her husband and a granddaughter who's now at Baylor, and I have another one that's a little further away. That's my, uh, Dakota's, my granddaughter's mother, who's Dakota's, spends time with me often. So anyway, that's that's the other relaxation, if you will.
2: Don't forget your dog Tito. <laughs> oh, and
3: Tito's right. He's been biting on my hand. He's bored. So he's been, he's been, I'm, I'm in a, a chair. What's called a chair and a half. It's yeah. not quite a love seat, but it's about almost as big as a love seat. And he occupies half of it. He's got his favorite blanket and half of it. So he's been beside me here in his chair,
2: chewing on my hand.
1: Okay, Bill. Go ahead and tell my listeners the best way to find you online and how to find your work.
2: I do a search for it. It's it to turn up Bill Moore, duo, Clomans, and space, and that'll that'll turn it up.
1: Okay, Fred. Can you please direct my listeners to your website that you brought up earlier?
3: Okay, it's space.
1: Okay, gentlemen. I end my interviews with my favorite question, and the question is this. If the entire planet was listening to this broadcast, what would be the one thing you would like to say to the people of Earth? And Bill, you go ahead and go first.
2: Mm. Well, just keep following the space program and and supporting it. And, you know, it's better than fiction. I mean, (laughs) I've always loved watching the space program on, you know, live on TV. NASA's always been good about promoting it. And if they just keep supporting it, We'll discover such amazing things, and of course, the program provides such a wonderful technology for us. I mean, everything, everyday things in our life came from the space program. So I would, I would tell them to pay attention to space and and support it in their own way.
1: Fred, you have been blessed to have seen the planet Earth from two hundred and thirty-eight thousand nine hundred miles away. So of all the guests I've ever had on my show, you will probably have the greatest answer to this question. Go ahead.
3: Well, my message would be to try to figure out a way to be able to uh, communicate and understand each other to avoid uh, a major calamity down the road that is uh, actually caused by the human race. Uh, we, have, we have threats to worry about from without the human race, so meteorites, uh, asteroids, et cetera thing going on now they talk about a lot about global warming but i worry seriously about nuclear war we have too many of those weapons sitting around with too many people and uh lack of communication is uh, it, it seems to be a a big bigger problem than maybe it maybe it hadn't been then if i think way back but seems to be a bigger problem today than it has been of people getting along and uh, i hope some there's some way to uh Communicate, and space provides the view that uh, you don't see borders from space. It's one Earth, and we all have to share it and hopefully uh, survive it.
1: Amazing. The book is Never Panic Early, An Apollo 13 Astronaut's Journey, available on Amazon, Barnes Noble, or wherever you get your books. Bill, thank you for introducing me to Fred, and congratulations on your book. Sir, I am forever in your debt for this.
2: Thank you. And that gentleman I couldn't think of from Tulsa was Jim Hartz. Ah. Jim Hartz.
1: (laughs) And finally, this is for you, Fred. I've been doing this show a long time. And honestly, if I was to die in my sleep tonight, after speaking with you, it would be a life well lived. This is for me, like meeting the president. And I've actually met one. (laughs) Um, Honestly, this will go down as one of the greatest honors of my life. And I want to thank you for not only being such a great guest, but also for all you've done for the space program. And finally, Honestly, in my honest opinion, you are one of the truly greatest Americans and human beings to ever walk the face of the earth. So from the bottom of my heart, sir, thank you. All right. Thank you. And just like that, Devonation, we come to the end of episode 142. There are no words that I can say to truly thank Fred for being up to telling his incredible story The real hero, though, in making this interview happen is Bill. Bill is an incredible man, and in the two months we got to know each other, I have grown to truly respect him. So, Fred, thank you for representing the best of humanity, and, Bill, thank you for helping to tell Fred's incredible story. Okay, tune again next time as we showcase another extraordinary person. I have a really good one coming up in a few days, so be sure to keep checking your favorite podcast streaming channel for that episode to drop. Also, I think it's fair to ask, and especially today, have you enjoyed this episode? I truly hope you have, so please go and hit that subscribe button to keep up to date for when new episodes drop. Also, if you are feeling generous, please drop us a review. We love reading. What our listeners have to say about us, good or bad? You know, we do prefer good ones, let's be honest. Everybody does, right? We are still enjoying our partnership with the amazing TeePublic. The Derek Duvall Show has a great little store on there. We have everything with our logo on it, including magnets, stickers, and mugs. Plus, we have some really fun T-shirts on there that Mrs. Duvall and I added. Please go to our website, DerekDuvallShow.com. Go to the banner on the left that says Merge. Click that, and you will be taken to our store on TeePublic. And once again, I want to thank them for being such great partners with the show. On behalf of myself and the entire team here at The Derek Duvall Show, I want to say to each and every one of you listening, when approaching a life or death task, remember the theatrical words of Gene Kranz, failure is not an option. No star, God bless, and see you next time. Planet Earth.
0: This has been a recording of The Derek Duvall Show, and we thank you for listening. Please go to our website, DerekDuvalshow.com for links to merchandise and to explore past episodes. Please find us on social media on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Derek Duval Show.